0: You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. Britain's Parliament is one of the most recognizable buildings in the world. Uh, to stand outside of it is very impressive, built over 900 years ago, uh, it contains 3800 windows uh, and has become a vocal point with its Gothic architecture to many tourists to so just stand there and marvel at it. But if you were to get a look from within the building, it would tell you another story. If you were to look within the walls, you'd find out it's a building that has faced repeated water damage because of faulty plumbing. Uh, Its electrical system is very outdated. Those who work in the building speak of at times having to run out of their office because water from an upstairs bathroom is running through their ceiling. England is facing a serious issue. They need to renovate Parliament but the cost will be anywhere between four and ten billion dollars and will take at least six years. So a very different story from looking from within at his condition versus looking from outside the building. In our study of Peter in this first epistle he takes us behind the scenes to look at the Christian life and you could say the church from within and in particular from within the area of relationships. Sam Chan has written a book called Evangelism in a Skeptical Age uh, and he presents this interesting scenario and says in the past what would seem to gain people's interest and attract them to the message of the cross was, was facts and information. So whereas maybe 10 years ago, if someone didn't believe in the Bible, you could present them with some facts right up front that might sway them to say, oh, I see your point. But he says things have changed now. and In a postmodern world, before you can get to the facts and the information, you have to display authenticity. They have to see that, that your life is different. And from Peter's perspective, the arena by which we can evaluate that best is looking at the area of relationships. And so I want you to look at 1 Peter this morning, 1 Peter 3. And I'm going to read verses 8 through 12, and you will see right away why we didn't read this passage to begin with, but read Psalm 34. Uh, But just follow along. I'm going to read 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 12. Finally, all of you, live in harmony with one another, be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing." For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. For the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. As as Peter has been talking to us about relationships, relationships between Christians and the state, relationships between Christian slaves and their masters, and then wives and husbands, he sort of turns to a very broad instruction now. Because perhaps there were those in that immediate audience who did not fit one of those other categories. Certainly the state would be one we could all relate to, But now he speaks in very broad broad term that the authenticity of our faith in Christ is displayed in the arena of relationships. And so the first relationship he deals with here in verse 8 is we should evaluate our relationships with other believers. And, and kind of think about that for a moment. Does your relationship with other Christians in, in your church, in this church, and other believers you know outside of this church, does it reflect the description that Peter gives here? And, and so if you look carefully at verse 8, he deliberately chooses five adjectives to present an overall picture of the relationship and the bond that should be displayed in Christ Jesus and it's worth our attention to just pause after each of these notice the first one that we would live in harmony uh, some translations put it that we would be like-minded that, that there is a unity and agreement in, in thought among us, we we share the same spiritual priorities and goals. Uh, Assuming we're in a church context, we share a a love and concern for our church, which is reflected in our love and concern for one another. Maybe we could put this sense of to live in harmony, to be like-minded. The thought that we're all on the same page. Uh, We're not not a body made up of so many individuals, but, but we are one. In Christ uh, remember Peter's audience is facing persecution they've been scattered for their faith uh, real tendency in situations like that to isolate ourselves to, to try to want to guard us from anything that might potentially hurt us in the wrong way Peter says you know what look at your relationships with other Christians are are they like-minded but then he goes on to the next adjective uh, they should be marked that we are sympathetic Uh, This particular word means that we share the same experiences, emotions, and feelings. Now some of this you can kind of look at in a church. Uh, You know, if if everyone is around the same age, maybe we've experienced, you know, our our adult children getting married, leaving the home, uh, grandkids coming, maybe health issues. So so there's a sphere of experiences that, that we should all be able to relate to. But in a much deeper way as a church, because we relate to them in the context of the work that Christ desires to do in each of us. So he speaks of this relationship where we are a body that is sympathetic towards the needs of one another. Uh, we could also put this in the way of that we participate in the lives of one another that we know stuff about each other. Uh, we're, we're not people that just get together on a Sunday and what's going on in our life outside of Sunday is just a deep, dark secret that we don't talk about. Uh, but it, it should be something we, we share in common. It uh, doesn't mean you parade out everything about your life maybe before every single believer or Christian, but there is a sense in which we should be able to say, we, we, we know each other. We, we not just share in the same experiences together, but we participate in each other's lives. Uh, think about Paul when he's writing to a church in Corinth that's already divided, says, you know, each part of the body should rejoice with another part that rejoices and should sorrow in a part that is sorrowing. That's this this sympathetic, empathetic element that should be evident among us uh, because we have the same great high priest, Jesus Christ. But then we go on to his next adjective, uh, love as brothers. Uh, The word from which we get Philadelphia, brotherly love. Uh, and you notice as you look just across the page in chapter 2, I believe it was, and verse 17, there he commanded, you are to love the brotherhood of believers. So he's reemphasizing something he's already said, that, that we should see ourselves as a church family. That when we speak of other believers, we should speak of them as family members. Uh, And I think that changes the entire context because we know today, and part of this is our our culture which makes its way into church settings at times, we have a very much a consumer mentality, Um, that if we see the church as simply from a consumer perspective, then my relationship with other believers is is going to be very marginal. As long as they are meeting my needs, what, what I want, I will stay. And when that deal no longer seems to be working for me, then, then I will go elsewhere. And I'm sure for many of us who've had teenagers and things like that, there are probably some times where you might have been tempted to say, gee, I don't know, is this a good idea to have children? But, but overall, you realize you're family, and you have to work through issues. And, and out of your love and understanding it's a family, it changes your perspective. Uh, and from what we know of Peter, the other apostles, uh, I'm sure in many ways they were people like us. They had strong personalities at times. They had issues that other Christians, their other disciples had to work through. Uh, and that carries over into the tone of this very pastoral instruction that Peter gives. So we should live in harmony, be of one mind, uh, sympathetic, we, we participate in each other's lives, we, we know what's going on, um, and that love as brothers. And then he mentions we should be compassionate. And we might think, well, it's not the same as love. Uh, the word compassion here is, is slightly different. It, it speaks of being tender-hearted. Um, there, there's a genuine concern, but uh, I guess the best way to compare this is it's used in a description of Christ in Hebrews 4, that, that he is our great high priest. When it says he's sympathetic, the actual word there is this word, he is compassionate. He is tender. and if you think of the description of Christ being like a a bruised reed how he responds to our hurts is not just well I accept anything but this is sin Uh, confess it I will restore you Uh, his work is not to crush a bruised reed and neither in the church family. Do we rejoice over the stumbling of another Christian? Do we rejoice over them struggling in an area? We we come alongside them tenderhearted, but also not compromising on God's word, on God's holiness. And I think as you, you start to think about this description of relationships within the church on one sense, I think we can look at this and say that that's what we need as Christians, but we need those who will help hold us accountable, uh, that will keep us on track, that are concerned for us, that ask the right questions of us. But then we have one more that in, in some ways you could say each of these are pivotal, but the last one mentions that you would be humble that our relationships with other Christians should be described as we are eager and ready to serve one another. Uh, Once again, think of what was going on in Peter's day. How would these characteristics have sounded? Well, the first couple are very similar to things a lot of pagan philosophers said. They talked about love. Uh, They talked about being concerned about the needs of others. But in particular, as you go through this list, this last one is so countercultural to the Greco Roman world. Uh, they, they despised humility. Uh, in fact, they, they referred to someone as humble as being someone who is weak uh, and, and a serious drain on the rest of society. Here Paul takes this word humble and elevates and says, as Christians, this characterizes how we relate to one another. Uh, Because we have the mind of Christ who who humbled himself and became a servant. What, What a refreshing look at this is what authenticity looks like among Christians. And I think as you read this, compare it to the environment in a workplace you've been in. Compare it to the environment out in our world. You start to see this is completely different. In the workplace, do people necessarily function all on the same page? Or do you often find one of the biggest issues is not that you hate your work, it's, it's the people you work alongside of. The difficulties that everyone has their own hidden agenda and and plan. Don't see much compassion and concern. I'm sure you can think of people you know who are not Christians and they genuinely have an interest in you. but, But not to the depth that we're talking about here. That should characterize our relationship with believers. Just think of our our theme verse that we've been learning. It highlights every aspect of this. When you say that verse, you should be thinking what that verse is primarily saying is that as Christians, we should invest in the lives of one another. That that should be evident for, for each of us. We invest in the lives of not just our favorite people in a congregation, but but in the lives of each one. Now it is possible in any church you can have someone who does not want that. They'd rather have a surfacy, sort of marginal relationship with others in the body of Christ. Uh, You can't change that. You can pray about it. You can pray for God to work in that individual's heart. But the reality is that should be the picture that we see in the church. And we can't do that. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in and through us. But as you sort of follow the line of thought, Peter moves to a second area of relationships. And that is not just our relationships within the church, but our relationships with the unchurch. What should that look like? Uh, And so you notice in verse 9... Verse 9, he begins with, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. And I don't know about you, but when I read that, I think, you know, Peter, you are so honest here. Because as we take our faith out into the world, we need to know what we should expect from the world. What should we expect from an unsaved community around us? Well, we should expect that for many they will function insult to insult, evil to evil. In other words, I think sometimes as Christians we are naive and almost seem surprised that we hear of people wanting to prevent the gospel from being taught. Or that, you know, there's discussions about removing this part from public services, a prayer for graduations and things like that. Why does that surprise us? Where along the way did we somehow assume that, that our job was to make the world like us? To, to want the world to see us as their friends. I'm not saying you need to be offensive, no. But but to think somehow our job was to to walk with the world, or for them to like us, is completely contradictory to the scriptures. Even Jesus, in one of the very earliest teachings with his disciples said, they they hated me, uh, they'll hate you. Welcome to Christianity. So we need to realize in our world, we should not expect anything less at times, then evil will be done to us. We will be insulted. Uh, The word insult here means criticized, reviled, uh, made little of. Every time I walk on the Dartmouth campus, I am reminded that to most of the majority of students there, Christianity they see as anti-intellectual. They see it as a thing of the past, not, not relevant to today but that's the climate around us. And we shouldn't be surprised at that, nor should we pull back from that. But accept that is the reality. It was the reality in Peter's day. But you notice that there's a transition in this discussion soon after this to the whole issue of suffering as a Christian in the world. But before Peter gets to that, notice the rest of verse 9. Know what to expect in the world, but then know what God expects from you. Because the rest of verse 9 says, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because of this you are called so that you may inherit a blessing. Now verse 9 is very interesting. We need to know what God expects of us. He has called us to be a blessing. Now the word blessing is the root for the word eulogy, means to, to speak well of. So although we are clearly aware of the anti-biblical, ungodly perspective of a postmodern world, we, we don't retreat from that, but we don't respond to it hurt for hurt, insult for insult but we are somehow to speak well of others that give us a hard time in life. Why? Because we're not interested in being popular among them. We're, we're concerned for their soul. We're concerned for their salvation. And the question comes up as you look at the last part of verse 9. What's the motivation here for being a blessing? He says you were called to be a blessing so that you may inherit a blessing. Now you can look at this one of two ways. One is either what follows being a blessing or what precedes it. So so in other words, let me put it this way. Are we to bless others so that we can look ahead to the future of getting to heaven and receiving something in return? A second way of looking at it is, are we to be a blessing because we already have reserved for us an inheritance in heaven and I think it's the latter that that we are to be a blessing why not like well this will earn me some future points in heaven but because of what I already have reserved for me in heaven and what a, a reminder to us that that we are to live this way because God has called us, that He empowers us in Christ. It would make no sense to say to a, a group or unbelievers, you, you need to do this. Because apart from Christ, one, they have no desire to, and they have no ability to do it. It completely changes when you realize Peter is writing to believers. And so you want to know what will show the authenticity of your faith, is how you relate to one another in the body of Christ, and then how do you relate to the unchurched, to the world around you. Now you come to verses 10 through 12, which is why we read Psalm 34. Because Peter goes to that psalm to support what he's saying. When we read Psalm 34, you may have looked at the superscription or the index before that. It says something about it being a psalm David wrote in response to when he pretended to be out of his uh, senses before the king of Gath, Achish, uh, possibly also the title of Abimelech, uh, and Abimelech basically just dismissed him. It's like, why why are you bringing me someone like this and, and just let him go? So it's an interesting context because the psalm is dealing with David relating to a a pagan king. So what is the connection that Peter wants his audience to make in this discussion about your relationships with the world and a scene that happened centuries earlier? But you notice verse 10 and verse 12 both begin with the same word, for which typically means here are some reasons here's an explanation why your relationships should be like this and given the context I think we can see Peter is saying there's some wise counsel here lived out in this psalm that is relevant to not just your relationship with the unchurch, but you could also say with other believers And that is, first of all, you notice in this section in verse 10, for whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. In our relationship with others, we need to strive to guard our tongues. Keep them from evil. Notice how quick Peter was earlier to say, don't return insult for insult. And some of you probably picked up on that pretty quick. Why is that just so easy to do? Well, we're sinful. And especially if you have a quick wit or you always have a comeback, you're you're like armed and ready. You know, someone insults you, you already have something. You're ready to fire back. So he cautions you and says, you know what, you've got to guard your tongue and I think it's interesting that that Peter's whole intent in this letter so far has been why do you do that well you're doing it ultimately out of fear of God because you will have to give an account it's not just that you're afraid of offending the person but but more than that you realize "I'm, I'm answerable to God so we need to follow this direction to guard your tongue in, in all our relationships. But then notice as well that goes with that, the rest of verse 10, which I read, uh, his lips from deceitful speech, he must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. We don't just need to guard our tongues, but we need to keep our hearts. Because you notice the connection, what comes out of your mouth reveals what's in your heart. Jesus was very clear on this when, when he was chastising the, the Pharisees and saying you're so focused on you know how you wash your hands correctly before you eat and, and you're citing the, my disciples because you're upset that they don't do that and he says you, you miss the whole picture. You, you can do all of the external preparations you want But what defiles you, what makes you unpleasing, is what comes out of your mouth because it reflects what is in your heart. And we come back to Sam Chan's point in his book. Do people see authenticity in us? Notice not perfection. Because I think sometimes it's beneficial for the unchurched to see that, that we make mistakes in the workplace that we have a bad day sometimes. But but what they need to see is how do we handle that after it happens? Do we demonstrate humility? Do we demonstrate sensitivity to the needs of others? Not just because we want their friendship or we're looking at trying to build church attendance, but because we know that God has displayed those same things to each of us in Christ. So it's very clear why Peter goes to Psalm 34. But then he makes another interesting connection. In verse 12 he says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Within the span of just a few verses you had Peter remind husbands at the end of verse 7 that what's going on in the relationship with your spouse can hinder and impact your prayers and now once again he presents that same principle to every Christian and says you realize if things in your relationships with other people in the body of Christ within your community around you that those things, if not handled and dealt with correctly, and don't reflect these adjectives, they are going to have an impact on your prayer life. So this is not an area where you can kind of compartmentalize in your life and say, well, I know I have some issues there, but but that's not going to affect this part. Peter says, no, just look at the people of Israel. Look at how sin within the midst of an individual affected the community. So Peter's understanding of using this Old Testament text to support what he's saying in the arena of relationships serves two purposes. I think one is he makes a deliberate connection between in the Old Testament, Israel, they were God's covenant people. Now under the new covenant, we as Christians are God's covenant people. And just like he demanded that they be holy, so the same standard holds for us in all areas of life, that we be holy. And out of that, a second is that our relationships with one another and the world is to be defined by our identity in Christ. That is what makes this passage be reasonable and logical. Of course, Peter, this is how we should be because we're in Christ. It's not defined by the people around us, it's not defined by the personalities in our church or the personalities not in our church. It's simply defined by our identity in Christ. No wonder Peter reminded us in chapter 2 that you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A people belonging, not to the world, but to Him. Let's pray. Our gracious God, in this very sensitive area of our lives, our relationships, help us to take this text to heart. That we would display the authenticity, the love towards one another that we have experienced through Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen.